According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again this morning in the book of Numbers. We are moving on to Numbers chapter 19, 20, and 21 this hour. This is day 66 in our Through the Bible calendar. As we are reading from Genesis to Revelation, from January 1st to December 31st, reading seven days a week, not assembling seven days a week. We're going to record four lessons today and come back for Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. So we are still providing seven teaching sessions on a weekly basis for the uh, seven daily readings that are being taken place in our homes. So day 66, which is actually tomorrow morning's reading on March 7th, uh, your reading will be Numbers chapter 19, 20, and 21, and we have to start with a red heifer, and we have to start actually with prayer. So let's go before the Lord and call upon His faithfulness to bless our time. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you once again as unworthy yet made worthy. We thank you, Father, that not one of us stands here in our own merit, but by the finished work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, it is in his name that we can stand before you, and it's in his name that we can present ourselves approved as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to be alive and powerful, even as your very word is alive and powerful. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we are in the midst of the wilderness wanderings, and uh, just last week we went through the Kadesh Barnea rebellion, whereby the generation failed, the Exodus generation failed to go in and conquer the land that God was giving them, and so God pronounced the judgment upon them that that generation will die. That generation will not see the promised land, and they're going to wander for 40 years, and we're actually covering that 40 years today, all right? So this goes by like that. Uh, but as we cover in Numbers, really from chapter 15 through 19, that spans that 40-year gap, all right? Because by the time we get to Numbers chapter 20, which will be right after lunch, when in the first of our two sessions after lunch, we have spanned the, the, the bulk of that 40 years, all right? They are on the verge again of entering into uh, Beulah land, as we just sang. All right, so let's take a look at chapter 19, 20, and 21 this hour. In chapter 19, this chapter details the cleaning procedures, the cleansing procedures that are necessary for the unclean person due to the touching of a dead body. And this is a timely uh, message because uh, they're going to be surrounded by dead bodies here shortly. And they already are. The recent plague that we saw last hour uh, has generated a significant need for such cleansing. In addition to the reality that the Kadesh Barnea failure means that the entire Exodus generation will die before their children can enter the land. And so there's going to be quite a bit of uh, death, death management, right? Burial of, of loved ones and all of the, the uh, events that coincide with that for an entire generation before they will be permitted to enter into the land. So the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. So these are the requirements here. Most of the offerings we've seen have been male burnt offerings. They've been the uh, male lamb, male sheep, a, a bull, for example. This is not the bull, this is the heifer, 
Okay, the other half of the, the bull and heifer tandem of the, uh, it's a girl cow in case you hadn't figured that out, that we're dealing with. It's also, by the way, a term of endearment in the Hebrew language. It would be very complimentary to name your daughter or to name your, you know, if I called my wife heifer, that would not be a complimentary term of endearment. But you know, culture changes, so someday. This unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Now he has these duties as the firstborn, but very quickly he's going to assume the high priestly duties and so it'll be his firstborn then, I believe, that will be tasked with this responsibility. And so Eliezer the priest shall be brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of his blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Okay, Remember, he's now outside the camp, but he can still you know, aim the, the sprinkling that, that direction. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. Slightly different from other procedures we've seen all through Leviticus and at least uh, to this point up through in the book of Numbers. Actually burning the blood. That's unique. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. And the priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. And again, I want to stress this. We've stressed this before. I think we're, um, we're hampered somewhat because as New Testament believers, our focus tends to, to center on uh, being in fellowship or out of fellowship, being spiritual or carnal, walking in the light or walking in darkness. We tend to have that contrast whereby we want to make sure we maximize, maximize our time in spirituality, minimize our time in carnality. We keep short accounts. And thank God that confession of sin is as, as quick and simple as it is, that I can go to the Father in prayer and confess my sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that's how we function in the church age. The problem with that, though, is that if we, if we are trapped, if we are just locked into this mindset where all we do is think about spirituality versus carnality, in fellowship, out of fellowship, we are actually very... Um, damaged for understanding Leviticus numbers to understand the Levitical priesthood for what it is because their contrast was clean versus unclean okay clean versus unclean on a ritual basis this ritual purity ritually clean and because trust me you could be ritually clean and carnal as the day is long all right but you could be ritually clean think about the Pharisees that were putting Jesus to death and they were, they were, they made Pilate come out to them because they didn't want to cross the praetorium. They wanted to keep themselves ceremonially clean so that they could then partake in, in Passover. It was the Passover season. And so they wouldn't cross into the praetorium and leave themselves ritually unclean. So they were very fastidious about staying ceremonially, ritually clean while they were murdering the, the Christ. <laughs> okay? While they were as carnal as you can get. So keep these things in mind. This priest shall be unclean until evening. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin. He's not out of fellowship, we, we, we would say, with our vocabulary. He's in fellowship. He's doing what the Lord wants him to do, but he touched a dead body. So he is now unclean, at least until sundown. 
until evening. Remember, Hebrew thought very frequently started a new day when the sun went down. They would have evening and then morning. So the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. And so they take these ashes and they're going to mix it in a water formula. They're going to mix it in a, in a liquid cleansing material. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statue to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. So this process, all right, is comprehensive and it's necessary. And it's very detailed, but they have to follow it. If they don't follow this recipe, if they don't keep this, this cleansed water handy, then what are they, what's the rest of the nation going to do? If this priest and this Levite aren't willing to do this, this duty. All right. Anyway, this chapter details the cleansing procedure for the unclean person and uh, the special ritual like the cleansing procedures and the sacrifice for a leper is precise and detailed and absolutely required. Remember, we went into nauseating detail on the, on the leper, on the issue of leprosy. Skin, clothing, houses, anything where there was a, a stain, anything where there was any kind of a blemish that had to be investigated had to be cleansed with the cleansing ritual. All right. The one, uh, let's see, where did I leave off? Verse 11. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. So there's a third day process, a seventh day process. Both are necessary going through to restore ritual purity, ritual cleanness. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel. Remember the principle of cutting off is something that God does, not man. It is not a judicial human function. It is a divine judgment function in, uh, in these activities. All right, verse 14. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. So beyond just touching a corpse, if you're in the same tent that a corpse happens to be in. Then you're under that tent roof with a corpse. You have the unclean status for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. All right? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in our day and age we have uh, a concept, a principle of law called open container. You know what I'm talking about? All right. In any event, that's not this. But the idea of an open container inside a tent where someone dies. All right? So if you have someone on their deathbed, if you're watching, I mean, it happens. It's normal. This is part of life. So, and this whole generation is going to die before the kids can go into the promised land. So as these things are happening, death by death for an entire generation, while the, the, the person's in hospice care, we might say, in the tent, they they got to get everything covered up. Okay? They can't have those open vessels. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who is in open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or human bone or grave shall be unclean for seven days. I was in a cemetery last week. Did that leave me unclean? 
Well, ceremonially, yes, in the Levitical Code, but thankfully I'm not under the Levitical Code, so there you go. Anyway, that's why these ashes are vital. They're also vital to uh, ordain, to consecrate a new high priest. And in fact, you'll see news stories every now and then. Every time a red heifer is born in Israel, there's all kinds of excitement and fascination and the buzz starts to circulate about, oh, maybe this is the time they can rebuild their temple and reconstitute their, uh, their priesthood because that's something they're very eager to do. All right, well, I want to get through this because we still have chapters 20 and 21 to go through. Um... All right, so the unclean person shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water, or sometimes it's translated living water. I think that's theologically significant, all right? The idea of living water, because Jesus addresses that in his messages, and there's aspects of this here. Flowing water, not something that you dug up from a well, but flowing water from a creek, from a river, something that's flowing, shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings and on the person who went there. By the way, there are so many arguments uh, on the scholars related to this hyssop. Okay, And when, when plant geeks geek out on their plants, they, they get serious about it, trying to identify which particular plant this would happen to be. Other people, like me, uh, I'm not a plant person, um, I don't care. I mean, honestly, just they did what they did, and whatever they did, they knew what they were doing. Also, I think there's, um, you can't make the assumption that because a plant is native in that land today, that that same plant was what was native in that land 2,000 years ago. That just doesn't work. And uh, we have proof of that here in Austin with these things that like to afflict us every January, February, and March. They weren't native to here either, but they arrived when they did, and we all pay the price. All right. <laughs> so here's the hyssop. Dip it in water, sprinkle it on the tent and all the furnishings, all the persons who were there, the one who touched the bone or the one slain and the one dying naturally on the grave. Now keep in mind, this is called a cleansing procedure. It's a cleansing ritual. It is for ceremonial purity. And if it seems like maybe it's not up to snuff as far as a real hygienic scrubbing is concerned, if, uh, you, know, if you run a... a janitorial service and you think that this is a recipe for cleaning your house, that's not what it's designed to do. Okay, This is just a sprinkle on a ceremonial basis to identify that we are subject to the, uh, the commandments of a holy God. So the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be clean by evening. So the seventh day is washing day, and by evening he's good to go. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. All right, And God's aware of all this. He's the one that's observing the clean versus unclean status of every Jewish person that would enter into the congregation, that would try to partake of Passover or tabernacles or booths or any of the feasts that they have, Pentecost, any of the feasts that, that Israel would have. Even just the Sabbath, the Sabbath meal, on an unclean basis, forget it. What are you, what are you trying to do? The God of holiness observes all that. All right, so that's chapter 19. We get on to chapter 20, and this is where we start to see how much time has passed since Kadesh Barnea. 
You think Kadesh Barnea, that was just last Thursday night. I was in class for that. That was just a few classes ago. Yes. Chapter 14. And how long has it been? Here we are in chapter 20 and all these years have gone by. We're going to notice this. They're approaching the, uh, the entrance to the land again. Chapter 20 begins with the death of Miriam and it ends with the death of Aaron. So they form uh, nice bookends there to the, uh, to the um, chapter. All right. And how old is she by this point? We're trying to do the math. Okay. Because remember, she's Moses' older sister. She was the one that was running along the riverside when Moses was floating in the, in the basket. Okay. And so Moses was 40, then 80 at the Exodus. So she is over 80. And now it's been 40 years of wilderness wanderings or approaching that. So she may actually be the oldest living woman that we read about, even though the number is not stipulated. Okay? The only one in the Bible we know about for any woman is Sarah at 127. But my suspicion is, is that, that, uh, that uh, Miriam actually beat that. All right. So the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin, with a Z, in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. All right. So there's the entire detail on that. Um, you wanted more? <laughs> we don't have it. This is it. But think about all the wandering. We don't know how many laps they did around the desert. We don't know what route they took in, the, in these 40 years. We don't know how many trips back and forth. Uh, have, they been, have they returned to Kadesh two or three times since the great failure? Or is this the very first time they ever returned to Kadesh since the great failure? I think that's more likely. But we don't know. All right. We do have an itinerary that's given. We're going to get in, in Numbers 33 and 34. We're going to have a wilderness itinerary. And uh, some of that will help us to reconstruct some of the journey. But much of that's guesswork also. Trying to put, trying to put numbers on a map is, is uh, the book of numbers on a map is not always easy to do. We do know though that Sin and Zin are different. Uh, the starts with an S or starts with a Z. Those are different wildernesses. And uh, we want to keep those straight. All right, so Miriam is gone. And really the rest of that generation is going to go as well. Starting in verse 2 then, Israel is faced with a second no water situation. And you know, they had one early when they came through the Red Sea and they grumbled. And now they're having another one. There was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And you would think, how faithful has God been that this is only the second time they've encountered something like this, or uh, at least the second time that the text records anyway. And uh, so they decide to assemble and, uh, and once again rebel. Because every time they've rebelled, it's always worked out great for them, hasn't it? We've always seen there's been fire or there's been serpents or there's been plagues or there's been something that's happened with every rebellion. And likewise here. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. All right, they're missing the point. They're still in the wilderness. Where there are the, 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 the pomegranates and the figs and the grain, all the good stuff is in the promised land. It's the promised land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land that their fathers did not take 40 years ago. You know, in a lot of ways, I could stop right there in verse 5 and just preach a whole sermon on that in the sense that there are people today, and you've met them, that you work with them, or family members, 
There are people today that look around this fallen world and they say, you know, we've, this, this place is awful. And I agree. The next one is the perfect one, right? Heaven is what we're looking forward to. The new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, that's going to be awesome. The current world here and now, I agree. It's, it's a fallen world. We've got fallen bodies in a fallen world. And, and so if, if you've got a, a Bible skeptic or an unbeliever, a friend that, that thinks that the problem of evil disproves the Bible, or if they think that because bad things happen in this fallen world that somehow Christianity can't be true, just laugh at them and say, no, it's the opposite. It, the, the, all the hardships, all the doctrine of evil, all the stuff that happens proves that, that God is accurate in what he's described. And it's not this world we're living for anyway, it's the next world we're living for. Might, uh, might be a, uh, a point that you can make with them. All right, so Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting, fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, all right, so now here we go again. How many times has this come up? How many times have the people rebelled, and then God has come to Moses, because Moses was pre- praying for him, pleading for them, and then we've had uh, at least two, maybe three episodes now where God says, all right, step back, I'm going to blast these people, and I'm going to start over with you. And up until now, Moses has passed every time. He has passed this test every time that he's come to it, until this time, right? And so this is why we talk about the, the, the humility that we have to have. Every time we pass a test, if we pass a family test, a marriage test, a workplace test, or whatever it is, we, there's a test of our faith. And we pass it, praise God, but don't get arrogant and don't assume that you're going you're gonna to pass it next time also just because you passed it the last time. Because Moses does not pass the test here. So here's the instructions in verse 8, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble to the congregation and speak, speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their bees drink. Notice the instruction is to speak to the rock. Before he was told to strike the rock. That was a different doctrine. This is a doctrine the Lord wants communicated here. He wants to speak to the rock this time. But is Moses listening? Is he half listening? Or is he just so mad he doesn't care what God says? Okay. And sometimes we, you know, we, we do that. We get angry and we just stop listening and we think we know what we need to do because we've done this before. But this time it's different. And this time he's told to speak to the rock. You say, well, what's that going to accomplish? <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you can teach a doctrine and you can illustrate something. And, and honestly, is speaking to the rock any worse than speaking to these rebels? Speaking to these rebels is like speaking to a rock. They're not listening either. So speak to the rock and make the point. Okay. Anyway, he's told to speak. But sadly, what we read here, Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered to the assembly before the rock and said to them, not the rock, said to them, listen now, you rebels. Okay? That's, uh, you, you don't start a sermon like that. That's not good. Okay? I recommend any pastor, you know, start with prayer, be in fellowship. But he, he was not supposed to be even talking to them in the first place. He was supposed to talk to the rock. And instead, he's yelling at those guys. Listen now, you rebel. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses, and he's not the one bringing the water anyway. God produces the water. 
But shall we do this? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. You know, and I think it's even worse. Of course, he disobeyed by striking rather than speaking. But then to strike the rock twice, I think, just doubles the issue related to what's the doctrine he's trying to communicate anyway? You know, Jesus, we understand, is the rock. Jesus was struck. He was afflicted for our, for our salvation. But the idea that he would have to suffer often, the idea that Jesus would have to be struck twice is just as blasphemous as the idea that Jesus would have to die on the cross, you know, more than one time. It's, it's, it's just, it's horrible. Think about the idea. It's a total denial of tetelestai. It is finished. Jesus finished work on the cross once and for all, saved us from our sins. That's, that's I don't know, just to me, I get, I get worked up over this because um, you know, if you have friends or family that are wrapped up in, in Catholicism or something of that nature, they crucify Jesus again and again and again. Every stinking time they say the Mass, they're re-crucifying the Christ. And it's just it's horrendous to me. All right. Did I say stinking? Okay. That's all right. I, st- I, that's okay on a Sunday morning. We can Vocabulary on Wednesday night might be a little different. No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. So, he strikes the rock twice. Water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their bees drank. Remember, it is the will of God for them to, to have water. He wants them to drink. He's keeping them alive. This next generation will go into the land. He didn't bring them here to, to kill them. So he is going to produce the water. He's not going to make the people suffer for Moses' carnality. Okay? So they're going to be provided for. But Moses has consequences, as we see on this. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And I have to wonder, in between Kadesh Barnea and here, what were Moses and Aaron thinking? Because when the promise was given that that whole generation was going to die, the only exceptions God mentioned were Caleb and Joshua. And, and I gotta wonder if maybe Moses and Aaron were, you know, did they just assume that they were good to go? Did they just assume that, well, you know, God meant to mention us, you know? But he didn't. He said Caleb and Joshua are the only two that are coming into the land. And now it's very explicit. So if they've been assuming for 40 years that, oh, well, he meant to include us, you know, it was unspoken, but, you know, he meant to include us, uh, now they're learning that's not the case. They will not be leading, uh, the congregation into the land. All right, so those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. And so in your notes, you have the outline there on the left side of the screen and the details of what we just read through. Moses was instructed to speak to the rock, not to strike the rock as he had done once before. Moses in anger struck the rock twice and forfeits his entrance into the land of promise. All right, from Kadesh, moving on, from Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers. Now remember, you can always, you know, right-click, you can always get your map up there. I also saved a map on my toolbar there where we can see some of these. And then you can zoom in and move it around. Here's Kadesh Barnea. The site of their great failure, the site where they were told it was going to take 40 years. And since then, they've been wandering down in the, in the desert. Now they're ready to go in for the second time. All right. 
So from Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. And we'll see how this goes, okay? Because the last time he did this, he was sending spies. And, uh, and 10 of those spies came back uh, totally in defiance of the will of God. But now he's sending messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said. Remember, Edom descended from Esau. Esau was the twin brother to Jacob. So when Jacob got renamed Israel, became the forefather of the nation of Israel, Esau becomes the forefather of the nation of Edom. So they're brother nations. They're both sons of Abraham, sons of Isaac. But Edom is not Jewish. Edom is not Israel. To be Israel, you have to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So even though Edom is descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, they're not the promised people. So Moses says, Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or the left until we pass through your territory. Now, this sounds very reasonable, right? This sounds rational, reasonable. <laughs> you know, when an army marches through your town, that can be, you know, you know just ask Ukraine right now. What, what's it like when a Russian armored column comes through your, your village? So the assurances here I find are, are useful and reasonable. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, believers with divine viewpoint would say, sure, no problem. Come on through. Or someone that was mindful of the fact that when you bless Israel, God blesses you. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. That might cross your mind if, if an occasion like this comes along. Edom, however, said, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with sword against you. If you cross our boundaries, that's an act of war, and, and we'll, we'll bring it. That's what Edom has to say. You're not going to pass through our land. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. This is like the old leave no trace um, camping that we used to do in the Boy Scouts, that only your feet are touching the ground and, and nothing else is left behind. You pack it out with you when you go. So again, this is now a follow-up. The, the answer has already been given. The answer is no, and if you cross our border, it's an act of war. So then they follow up, don't take no for an answer, and ask again and re-emphasize, hey, we're willing to pay cash. And I find that's a little bit of a quibble too because earlier they said, we won't even drink water from a well. Now they're kind of admitting that, yeah, they probably will, but they'll pay for it. I don't know, it just seems fishy to me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to read this from the perspective of, of a suspicious Edomite. Okay? But he said, you shall not pass through if an Edom came out against him with a heavy force and a strong hand. You know, if there's, if there's an opposing people group on your border and you want to make a, a show of force to demonstrate that you mean business, then this is, uh, this is what you would do. So Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. 
H-O-R. And that's where Aaron is going to die. Alright, also, there's a better map than the one I brought up earlier. Let me just go to Edom and pick out Edom the place. Let's see if we can find the land of Edom. Not the person, but the place. Anyway, there are better maps where you can see Yeah, these are all tagged as the person, not the place. All right, well, if you don't have something to click, then you just manually open up your fact book and type Edom. And we want the place, not the person. And here's where we can find our maps. And you're going to find that you've got dozens of maps. More maps than you can shake a stick at. And uh, if we focus on the wilderness wanderings, we can find the one that really applies to uh, what we're dealing with. Here we go. You're going to have photographs. Those are modern day photographs. They're not from the Bronze Age. Yeah, you got 53 Edom maps in your atlas. to decide which one of these I want to do. I don't think it matters. We can get all of them. There's the spies. There's the wanderings. Alright, let's do this one. Battles of the wandering Israelites. So you can see if they're in Kadesh Barnea, and instead of approaching from the south, because that worked so well last time they tried it, instead of approaching from the south, they're actually going to attempt to approach from the east. And in order to approach from the east, well, they've got Edom and they've got Moab in between there. And so obviously the short route would just be come up through here, like that, but Edom is saying no. So they've got to walk the long way around, Okay and uh, work the way all around to the south and then around the east side and then come up and then we're going to see them try to go through the land of Moab. All right. Well, thank you, Lord. I'm glad I finally found the map I wanted. And you guys got a, a log off software tutorial while you were at it. All right. So from Kadesh Barnea, they cried out and Edom is going to say, no, you shall not pass through us. So Israel, and so the Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. And thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. All right. Now Israel has instructions too. They can't just get all mad at Edom and wage war. Because this Edom is right in defending their land grant. This is the territory that Yahweh has granted to Edom. And that is their position. And so they turned Israel away. All right. Anyway, they reach Mount Hor. 
Here's an argument too. There's about two or three different Mount Horror candidates of where people think uh, Aaron happened to die. Um, we'll just read it and, and let them continue their argument. <laughs> Aaron died on Mount Hor, and his office passes to Eliezer. So, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. It was Moses and Aaron both that, that had the consequences for that rebellion. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar, bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and he will die there. And so Aaron, uh, Eliezer becomes the new high priest just like that, stripping the garments off of his father and, and dressing up like the high priest. His dad dies and he's got the job. That's how it works. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on his son Eliezer, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. So it's a time of grief. Later on in Israel's history, they're actually going to be told about procedures for um, the manslayer, procedures for the city of refuge and opportunities that someone can go and flee. And the time of their exile in those cities of refuge, uh, they get a reset with the death of the high priest. And so there's actually a benefit when the high priest dies for certain people that would then have a, re- a redemption, a release from uh, from their exile in, in that city of refuge that they've they've fled to. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. That hasn't been covered yet. Numbers chapter 21. Time for battle, okay? Just as the Exodus generation faced their first battle against the Amalekites, the wilderness generation is going to face this battle, this first battle, where they learn to trust in the Lord. And it is. It serves as a, as a getting their feet wet. It serves to give some combat experience to their, to their rookies, Okay, a young man that's never been to war before and now all of a sudden it's on him because the older generation is gone and now the kids are assuming adult capacity. Remember, everybody that's alive now was under 20 when they walked through the Red Sea or they weren't even born yet when Israel walked through the Red Sea. So let's look at these first three verses. When the Canaanite, the king of... uh, And there's a manual... There's a text criticism problem in these verses, but that's all right. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. See, the problem is they had to walk around Edom, which means now they're going to go through this other territory. And, and this guy doesn't like it either. So he is the Canaanite, king of Arad, not King Arad the Canaanite. There's, I think the, the King James handles it differently, and it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle anyway, a manuscript issue. Anyway, this new king here, he says, no, he doesn't want him coming through his land either. So he sends out his army, fought against Israel, and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. So they've got a counterattack, and hopefully they can rescue some of the captives that they've lost already in the, in the early skirmish. So the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. 
And the, 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 uh, the Hebrew word for utter destruction, the Hebrew word for dedication to place under the ban, this is a, a principle that, that Israel is given. Okay? I don't know if any Gentile nation was ever given such a thing. But Israel was given this as a, as a um, complete dedication to destruction. No plunder, no booty, no, no human profit off of any of it. It's going it's to be destroyed for the glory of the Lord. And we're going to get that term more uh, frequently as we move into Joshua and we see the conquest for what it is. But they utterly destroyed them and their cities. We need to, we need to recognize this. We need to, uh, I think, study it, know it, appreciate it. And then we also have to address some of the concerns that our generation struggles with. Okay, uh, We live in a postmodern world. We live in a world of moral relativism. We live in a world of, of um, human good sensitivities. And we live in a world where uh, the atheists and the critics and the other God-haters will point to things like this and say, your God is a moral monster. Your God orders genocide. Your God orders the destruction of women and children and non-combatants and animals. That really bugs them when you kill the animals. And so since they're going to be bothered by all this, we need to be able to just, you know, in grace, being able to describe the holiness of God, being able to describe the sinfulness of man, being able to describe the righteousness of God's actions, <coughs> and then also, beyond, of course, obviously we deny that God's a moral monster, it's His standard of righteousness that determines right and wrong in the first place. And it's, it's, it's a little bit amusing when somebody who doesn't believe in an absolute standard of right or wrong tells you that your God is a moral monster. Okay? Well, wait a minute, I thought you said there is no absolute standard of right and wrong. I thought if it's right for you, it's right for you. If it's right for me, it's right for me. If it's right for God, isn't it not right for God to destroy the Canaanites that he destroys in the land? Okay, So we need to be equipped for this. We need to be prepared to give this answer. (coughs) Realizing that God himself brings people groups to an end. God will bring the political organization to an end and then God will bring the people group to an end. How many Hittites have you met? Where are they today? Okay. And you can still encounter an Assyrian every now and then. There are Assyrian people that are still alive in the world today, but there's no Assyrian empire. There's no Assyrian nation. God is in charge of this. The appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's the sovereignty of God at work. Every people, tribe, tongue, and, and nation on this earth. When it's time for the Canaanites to end, it's time for the Canaanites to end, and God is in charge of that. So, Israel vowed to utterly destroy the Canaanites if the Lord gives them the victory. To me, that's a kind of a strange vow. God's already promised them the victory, and now they're saying, if you do, then we'll do this. Well, God already promised that they're going to have victory for the entire conquest. But give them credit, at least they did it, and better than their parents did. So the place was named for its positive example. The vocabulary of haram, the vocabulary of hormah, you have them there, uh, the Hebrew verb and the noun, uh, Strong's number 2763 or 2767. Uh, but the idea of devotion, devoted to destruction, that is absolutely devoted. And we've got to learn this now because it comes up with Jericho. It ends up with the plunder that was secretly stolen out of Jericho. And then that led to the defeat at, uh, at Ai. So if we learn the lesson now, we'll, we'll have a better understanding of it when we get to uh, Jericho and Ai in the book of Joshua. 
So Israel's detour around the land of Edom prompted additional grumbling. And again, here we go again. So they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. As if 40 years isn't long enough, an extra six weeks of walking around Edom is just outrageous. The people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What's that? The manna that God has graciously provided them. They hate it. They loathe it. It's a lesson for all of us. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. It is interesting to me how every time this judgment comes, it's different from what they had before. You know, it's either a plague, or it's fire, or it's it's something, and, and it just seems like he has a creative, inventive new way of administering discipline to his people. In this case, it's the fiery serpents. And this, I, you know, I'm hoping this is on video. I want to see a replay on this when I get to heaven because this seems cool, right? This seems interesting to me. Plus, the vocabulary that's applied here is connected to many of our angelology studies that we've done before as well. And so that gets my attention. When he sent fiery serpents, when he sends these, uh, remember the Nahash serpent? We have the Ha Nahashim, that's plural, and then the Ha Seraphim. I mean, the word seraphim we know, right, from cherubim and seraphim, this is a kind of an angel. Angel serpents, or fiery serpents, fiery seraphs. Anyway, the vocabulary of Nahash we're familiar with because of Genesis 3 and other passages. Uh, the, the language of saraf gets introduced here, but then we're, we're more familiar with it probably in the holy, holy, holy chapter of Isaiah chapter 6. Because it's the, the seraphim that are bowing before God's throne with their wings in um, Isaiah 6.2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So yeah, we have these fiery serpents. The Lord sends fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And so it's curious to me, I don't, you know, these, these don't appear to me to be zoological creatures. These aren't, you know, animals. These are, I think these are uh, incarnated demons or incarnated fallen angels of whatever sort. And uh, remember when we saw uh, the, the angels before God's throne divided on the left and the right volunteering to be a deceitful uh, spirit in the ear of, of the king's prophets? God, when he wants a volunteer for a demon to go attack a believer, he gets plenty of volunteers. There's never a shortage. And so I think these serpents were delighted to just start biting people. (laughs) Okay? So, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you, I'm sorry, spoken against the Lord and spoken against you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So, you know, time and time again, and if you think this is unique, it's not. It's going to come up. This is basically the pattern for the book of Judges. Over and over and over again, they'll repent, they'll get delivered, and then they'll fall back into sin again. They'll repent, they'll get delivered, fall back into sin again. But at least they're confessing and they're, they're begging Moses to intercede. He is, the, uh, he is the intercessor for them, by the way. All right, so the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Again, if the curse is unique, so too is the salvation. So too is the rescue. 
He's teaching a different principle every single time so that at least they can maybe learn something new from each different rebellion that they instigate. And the doctrine they're learning in this rebellion is marvelous. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. And so Aaron ha- or Moses has to construct this, this pole, this, this standard and, the, and put it up on the side of everybody. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And we don't know its dimensions, we don't know how tall it was, but it was on a pole, it was on a standard, he set it up there, and people could look at it. And all you had to do was look and live. How easy is that? It's like the hymn that we sing, look and live. Okay, It's easy. Moses is doing the work, building the thing. Right? All they got to do is look at it. And it came about, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. How easy is that? So this is the Lord's provision of salvation. Not only do we read about it here, but then it gets referenced in the book of John. Jesus preaches about this because this is such an obvious picture of Jesus dying on the cross. Okay, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too, this is John 3, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, Jesus has to die on the cross or we don't get saved. And again, if you want to think of the whole picture, the whole thing as a, as a metaphor, recognizing uh, we've all been snake bit, right? We've all been, uh, every one of us is a descendant of Adam. We're all sinners in need of eternal life. We're all fallen beings in Adam. So there's, there's not one of us that, that doesn't need this uh, deliverance. So whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So there's one object, there's one source of rescue. There's only one provision for the the affliction that we all have. So it's a marvelous uh, shadow. The typology of this episode is, is tremendous in teaching soteriological truth from an Old Testament context. Uh, this, this shouldn't be a newsflash for anybody. And, and the idea when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, that was an Old Testament reality going back to, the, to, the, uh, to Israel's stewardship in Old Testament times. So the people who had been bitten were required to look to the cross for salvation. The work's done. Just appropriate it. Just look at it. It's all you've got to do. If you don't look at it, well then you're dead. But if you look at it, the, the provision is there. How easy is that? Now, spoiler alert, when we get into 2 Kings 18, which won't be until midsummer sometime, all right, we will get there. It's coming up on the, on the Through the Bible uh, program. Um, we're going to find that they held on to this. Why did they hold on to this? When this episode was over and they moved on and they had a, they had a, a land to conquer and they had other things to do, but somebody... Held on to this, right? There's always a pack rat. Somebody's going to stick this away in a garage somewhere. <laughs> in later years, Nachash Nehosheth, this was retained as an idol. And they named it Nehushtan. And the Nehushtan idol, they, they, they set up a, a whole cult to this. They set up a worship system to this, this device, this thing that Moses built, as if it has value, right? Like Almost like a medieval Catholic uh, superstition with a relic of some sort. So they, they bowed down to it, they worshipped it. By the way, I think the name Nehushtan gets my attention because it is the combination of Nahash with Tan, with, with the word for dragon. Much like we have with Levi and, and Tan for Leviathan. 
You just have a different prefix you're attaching in front of your tan, which is in front of your dragon. Anyway, more study to do on that, beyond what we can, what we can handle today. All right, everybody with me? <laughs> Take a drink. I know, this is the roller coaster. This is the, this is the saga. We started it January 1st, and we're not going to stop till December 31st. Rapture pending. Okay, <laughs> if the trumpet sounds, uh, we're all out of here and we'll never finish our Through the Bible series, okay? And I won't be heartbroken. But still, I think it'd be kind of cool for January 2nd rapture and then we can have this finished series. And the, I would love, I would love to have 365 YouTube videos just sitting there after the church is raptured for the, the Great Tribulation and whatever believers are going to need when, uh, when that happens. All right, well, let's go to Oboth. So the sons of Israel moved out and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Yebarim in the wilderness, which was opposite Moab to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zered. From there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord... You ever read that? No, you haven't. We don't know what it is. No one has had it in our lifetime. But this is what it said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Waheb in Sufa, and the wadis of the Arnon, and the slope of the wadis that extend from the, uh, to the side of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. All right. Most of that's lost to us. But we, un- we want to glean that it's in the Bible for a reason, and I think it's cool when we can start to see how these things come together. All right? The fact that not only is God recording his dealings with his people, but there are other people recording God's dealings with God's people. There are extra biblical books. There are many of them. This is only our first glimpse at a large, large collection of literature that was available to the Jewish people in the early Bronze Age. Okay? Or Middle Bronze. Middle Bronze 2, I think, is how Glenn called it. So let's talk about some of these. Israel makes its approach into Canaan from the east rather than from the south as before. Their journey around Edom and through Moabite regions was marked by conflict and recorded in the book of the wars of the Lord. Okay? Not a Bible book, but a, a secular book, a secular history, if you will. The wars of the Lord. Israel was instructed to not make war against Moab as the Lord had chosen to bless the children of Lot. Now we're going to get to that when we get to Deuteronomy, so that's still a week away. But we're going to see little glimpses of that here today. Uh, Balak, king of Moab, will soon join together with Midian in an attempt to curse Israel. We're going to handle that after lunch. That's where they hire Balaam. Remember, Balaam is the prophet, the four-prophet prophet, and he's going to be featured uh, in chapters 22 through 24. Now here, you got some notes here. Um, the secular book is no longer in existence, but it was known in ancient times. And there are so many more that if you're not aware of them, this class will be your introduction to them. There is a, a book called the Book of Jashar. It's referenced in Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18. All right? And it's, it's referenced at least twice in the Old Testament. And you can go to those verses and see what this book is about. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
The sun stood still, the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? You know, if the sun stops, was, is that going to get anybody's attention? Is that an event that might be worth writing about? And, uh, and it was written about. And uh, there was no day like it before that or since. Same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 1. They told him to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. You can actually get lyrics from this secular book and teach your children. That's not sinful. <laughs> you can sing songs that come from other sources besides the Bible. That's allowed. Even in Mosaic law, that's allowed. In the church age, it's even more allowed. We live in liberty. We live in grace. There's a book of Samuel that's not the same thing as what we think of as First and Second Samuel. Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own house. By the way, there will be people who think that that is the book of Samuel. I think it's something different. The Acts of Saul, or the Chronicles of King David. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, had begun to count them, but did not finish. Because of this, wrath came upon Israel, and the number was not included in the account of the Chronicles of King David. Some people think that was First and Second Chronicles. The Acts of Solomon. The rest of the Acts of Solomon, whatever he did in his wisdom... Keep in mind, how much did Solomon write? How many Psalms did he write? How many Proverbs did he write? Far more than we have in our Bible. Far more. And the rest of his acts, whatever he did, his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? You know, if Titus Kennedy or some archaeologist was to find this someday, they'd be pretty famous just to find something like this and be able to, to translate it and present it for, uh, for study. All right, well, there's the first four. We also have the collective writings of Solomon concerning secular wisdom and knowledge. Again, not recorded in the Bible. Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs. That's far more than our book of Proverbs. His songs were 1,005. What do we have in our Bible? The Song of Solomon, right? And Psalm 127. All right. Then we have... um, He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even of the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Well, that'd be kind of neat. I want to read what Solomon wrote about creeping things. It's not in the Bible. It's not preserved for us today. And the point is, as we see all the rest of these here as well, I've got to wrap this up. As we see all the rest of these things here as well, one thing that's a key takeaway then for all of this, a key takeaway is when you see the, the full library of literature available in the, in the second millennium B.C., in the bronze, we're talking 1500 B.C., 1400 B.C., look at all of this collection of literature. And then what do you think about the liberals and their opinion that the Jewish people were illiterate until the Babylonian captivity? That they couldn't possibly, Solomon couldn't possibly have written his Proverbs in 1000 B.C. Well, why not? Or Moses couldn't possibly have written Genesis, couldn't possibly have written the Torah in a, in a 15th century B.C. wilderness journey. Why not? Do you know how literate they were? Do you know how literate Egypt was? And he was educated, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. All right, so we have all these books. The Chronicles of Samuel, the Chronicles of Nathan, the Chronicles of Gad, 
the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, the visions of Iddo the seer, the annals of Jehu the son of Hanani, and the records of the Hosei, the, the diaries of the seers. Anyway, all of those references, they're all cited in the Old Testament. Just like in the New Testament when Paul cites a pagan poet or when uh, the book of Jude cites the, the book of Enoch or something like that. Just because a secular work is referenced doesn't make those, those secular books canonical, doesn't make them part of the Bible. We don't worship them or, or study them or, or base our lives on them. But we recognize that the Bible was written as a part of a very literate ancient world. And we continue that tradition today in the church age. We continue that today by exegeting the text and doing text criticism and, and exploring manuscripts and all the things that we do with, uh, with this style of ministry. All right, well, we've got to wrap this up. We've got, we got the battles then of Bashan and Og and, and six minutes to do it. Israel enjoys two more tremendous military victories over mighty Amorite kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. And actually, um, the record here in Numbers is pretty short. We get more detail of this in Deuteronomy with hindsight looking back at it. So if we're rushed today, I'm, I'm consoled by the fact that the story gets told multiple times and uh, we'll get a chance to hit this again. But uh, verses 21 through 35 are these victories to Sihon. And, and it's curious too because Moses uses the same conciliatory approach where he'll send a messenger saying, let us pass through your land. We will not turn into field or vineyard. And it's kind of curious. Um, when the answer comes back, no, Og and Sihon, these are different than Edom. Okay, These are different than Moab or Ammon. That they have full privilege to go in and wage war on these, on these uh, Gentile peoples. And so they do. They absolutely do. Anyway, we're going to run out of time on this. Sihon and Og. Back-to-back victories over Sihon and Og inspired terror in the minds of the Canaanites as the deliverance from Egypt did in the previous generation. So this is the shock and awe that's going to influence their conquest. When they cross the River Jordan and they're they're coming into uh, Jericho, word of what happened to Sihon and Og is going to be spreading like, like you won't believe. And so that's going to spark fear because the thing that happened in Egypt, those plagues and whatnot, that was 40 years ago. And the, the current generation of Jerichoites, maybe, yeah, their grandfather told scary stories back in the day, but it's not fresh enough in their thinking to intimidate them anymore. And so the example of Sihon and Og provides a contemporary account for how powerful the Lord is and is able to strike fear into the uh, defenders there when Israel moves into the land. Well, I'm out of time. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. And Father, I know this is a ton of material. And in normal years, we wouldn't try to teach three chapters in a message. But this is what you've given us, Father. You've given us this through the Bible format. We thank you for it. We thank you, Father, for uh, 66 completed messages now and th- you know, 300 or 299 more to go. But Father, in your grace, day by day, class by class, I thank you for opening our eyes to the, to the big picture, Father, the panorama, the Alpha to Omega overview, so that we have the, the comprehensive big picture understanding. Father, this is what we're, we're striving for. So in the coming years, when we return back to the in-depth, when we return back to the normal mode of teaching, 
that will have a, a frame of reference with which to connect every separate study, every doctrinal study that we undertake. Father, this is uh, it's ambitious, but it's what you've given us, and we thank you for it. So we give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.